2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Attorney General Merrick Garland has said it before, no one is above the law. However, in an interview with NBC this week, Garland appeared to be a little more specific about the extent of the January 6th investigation.
3: Look, we pursue justice without fear or favor. We intend to hold everyone, anyone who was criminally responsible for the events surrounding January 6 for any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another accountable. That's what we do.
2: That statement, along with reports about questions asked by prosecutors in the grand jury, indicate that the Justice Department is indeed investigating the role of former President Donald Trump in overturning the 2020 election results. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter & English. Bob, does there appear to be a change in Merrick Garland's tone?
3: Well, I think... The very public nature about the January 6th House Committee hearings, and particularly the testimony from some of the individuals who used to work directly for the Trump administration, was very compelling and has put a lot of pressure on the Department of Justice to look at this information and to consider potential criminal charges against the former president and others in his orbit.
2: Mark Short, former Vice President Pence's former chief of staff and Greg Jacob, his former chief counsel, appeared before the grand jury, and they were asked about conversations they had with Trump and his inner circle about efforts to create false electors. What did that signal to you?
3: Well, as you know, this investigation has been going on with the Department of Justice since shortly after the January 6th assault on the Capitol. And since that time, federal prosecutors have charged 840 individuals with various charges directly relating to assault and to forcibly entering the Capitol. But the investigation has taken a different turn recently because we know that individuals who are being brought before the grand jury are being asked questions directly about the former president's involvement in the efforts to reverse the election loss, and particularly, what did he know, when did he know it, and what direction was he giving his lawyers and those around him in the events leading up to January 6th. So that suggests to me that the Department of Justice is taking a more aggressive tone, and they are entering what is clearly a very politically fraught phase of this investigation.
2: The grand jury can do what the January 6th committee can't or won't do. They can subpoena former Vice President Pence. They can grant immunity to cooperators like Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, or John Eastman, the former attorney for Trump. Would that be a very aggressive move for prosecutors?
3: Well, this whole investigation is unprecedented, and it really has placed the Department of Justice in a very difficult circumstance. Because on the one hand, the idea of prosecuting a former president is something that has never happened in our nation's history. When there have been instances where a president may have committed a criminal act, such as with former President Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton – Those cases were handled differently. There was an impeachment and ultimately a voluntary resignation by President Nixon. Bill Clinton was impeached but not convicted. And ultimately, there were grants of immunity and decisions to forego prosecution. So here to indict a president would be something that has never happened before. And the problem that the Department of Justice has is, on the one hand, Merrick Garland, the current attorney general, has made crystal clear that his view is that nobody is above the law and they will investigate these alleged crimes wherever the evidence leads, including up to the doorstep of former President Trump if that's where the evidence takes them. On the other hand, the Department of Justice is aware of the politics of all of this, and they have to pursue a case in a way that avoids appearing to use government power to punish political enemies and ensure the tradition of a peaceful transfer of power. So it's a very difficult balancing act for the Department of Justice, and ultimately, It will, I think, turn on whatever evidence the Department of Justice uncovers, how powerful that evidence is and how confident prosecutors and in this case, particularly the Attorney General Merrick Garland, is that if they do bring criminal charges, that they will ultimately get a conviction and they will get a conviction that will stand up on appeal.
2: Do prosecutors have to consider the effect of charging someone like former President Donald Trump on the country?
3: Well, prosecutors are always very careful about bringing charges against elected officials or people running for office because of the impact that the charges can have on the electoral process. And so in this case, for example, If there were a decision to be made to open a criminal investigation into Mr. Trump, a decision that apparently has not been made as of this point, and if the decision was made after he announced his intention to run for president again in 2024, something that he has not yet done, but he has certainly flirted with that prospect, there is a a rule in the Department of Justice that was put in place actually by former Attorney General Bill Barr, but has been endorsed by the current Attorney General, that says that the department's leadership would have to take a formal consultation process and then sign a formal approval of the department's intentions to review that potential investigation. And that ultimately would be a decision that was made by Merrick Garland. So prosecutors take the concept of pursuing criminal charges against elected officials very seriously. And the general rule is that prosecutors don't like to take steps involving an investigation that could possibly affect the outcome of an election that's coming up. On the other hand, they have to follow the leads when they become known to them, and they have to follow those leads wherever they take them. So they're not going to delay an investigation because of the possible political consequences, but they're certainly aware of the consequences of any public steps that they may take in connection with an investigation that puts an elected official or somebody running for office under criminal investigation at a time that may affect the outcome of an election.
2: So they have some time yet since uh, he's not running till 2024. Criminally charging a former president would be unprecedented, but there is no Justice Department opinion against it. Is there as there was with charging a current president?
3: That's right. There is no position within the Department of Justice about charging a former president. And there really shouldn't be because it doesn't affect their duties as an elected official. It doesn't affect their ability to run the country. This is somebody who was a president, is no longer a president, and from the standpoint of the Department of Justice, should not be above the law, should be subject to the same rules and subject to the same laws as any other citizen in this country. But the stakes in such a prosecution are enormous. And the Department of justice is certainly aware of the impact that even an indictment would bring, let alone ultimately a trial and conviction possibly down the road. And so that's why these investigations are typically opaque. In other words, prosecutions to political figures, which do happen more frequently than most people realize, are done with grand jury secrecy. No charges have been brought. People are brought before a grand jury. An investigation may or may not lead to criminal charges. And oftentimes The public is not even aware that a public official has been investigated when ultimately the decision is made not to bring charges. In this case, this is an investigation that is not going to escape public scrutiny. It's not going to escape the media. People know who are being brought before the grand jury. People are talking about their grand jury testimony, which they're allowed to do. It's only prosecutors who are bound by grand jury secrecy. And so it's going to be impossible for the public not to be aware generally speaking, where the Department of Justice is going with this investigation. But there may be things going on in the investigation, even now, that we're not aware of because the grand jury is secret and the Department of Justice is certainly not going to comment on an ongoing investigation.
2: The January 6th committee laid out evidence for a number of potential charges, including conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and to defraud the United States. To establish guilt for a conspiracy... Do you need to show that every member had criminal intent or knowledge as to every part of the scheme?
3: No, you definitely do not. Conspiracy is a tool often used by prosecutors, and what it is is simply an agreement To commit an illegal act, and then in order to be convicted, you have to commit one or more overt acts in furtherance of that scheme. But you don't have to know who all the other co-conspirators are. You don't have to know all of the purposes of that conspiracy necessarily, as long as you're aware of one illegal purpose and you take one step to further that end, you can be guilty under the conspiracy law. So it's something that's used quite frequently by prosecutors, and it doesn't mean that you have to know every aspect of the potential illegal goals of the conspiracy, you just have to know one and take one step to further that end.
2: If Garland were to prosecute Trump, would he want a straightforward case that can withstand scrutiny of court proceedings and appeals? And is the scheme to create fake electors that more straightforward case?
3: If the Department of Justice were to pursue a case against former President Trump, there's no question that Merrick Garland will want a case that is virtually bulletproof. He'll want something that is straightforward, that jurors can understand, and that will ultimately almost guarantee him a conviction and ultimately almost guarantee him that on appeal – the conviction will not be reversed. So at this point, there were two phases of the government's investigation. The first had centered on the seditious conspiracy and conspiracy to obstruct government proceedings. These are the type of charges that were brought against the many individuals who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. But now the investigation is moving into a second phase, as you mentioned, where the Department of Justice is focusing on this potential fraud associated with the false elector scheme or with pressure that former President Trump and his allies allegedly brought on the Department of Justice and others to falsely claim that the election was rigged and the votes were fraudulently cast. And that's, I think, something that ultimately would be a stronger charge. But they, again, have to show the knowledge of former President Trump and specifically focus on what he said to individuals around him, what he directed them to do to show that he understood that these electors were not legitimate and that it was simply going to be a way to try to throw the election from Congress over to the vice president so that he could then throw the election back to the state electors. And that is something that, that there is some testimony that the government has already developed showing that one of the lawyers who was involved in putting the scheme together knew that the electors were fake and actually referred to them as state electors. That's powerful evidence, at least against that individual lawyer. They have to then tie that to President Trump and others around him to show that they knew that these electors were not legitimate. You know, we
2: talked before, I think, about First Amendment-protected political activity and whether or not Trump's speech on the ellipse could become part of an
3: alleged conspiracy.
2: Would that be avoided if they go with the fake elector scheme?
3: Yeah, I think it would be. I mean, certainly there was a lot of testimony that we heard before the January 6th House Committee about the speech that former President Trump gave and the results directly tied to that. And you heard testimony from lots of individuals who said they believe the president was exhorting them to march down to the Capitol and to actually storm the Capitol and to take whatever means that they could to prevent the certification of that election. But that does get into that area that prosecutors don't like to be in, where you've got this First Amendment protected political activity issue and whether or not a person's speech could become part of an alleged conspiracy. And if you listen Listen to the words that the president spoke that day, which people have scrutinized very closely. It is a very difficult call exactly what he was saying, what he was urging people to do. He spoke sort of in broad generalities. He wasn't specific. And so certainly there could be an argument made there that that was protected political speech and was not really inciting people to commit violent acts.
2: Trump has survived previous investigations, countless civil lawsuits and two impeachments. Can we expect if he is indicted that there will be countless challenges and appeals?
3: Well, certainly, fighting it out in the courts is not something that is foreign to President Trump. He does it all the time and has done it with some success as a businessman before he became president. This would be something that would be fought out in the courts. We can expect that. The Department of Justice would expect that. And that's why they would bring a case that they believe would withstand that kind of scrutiny, a case that they believe jurors would get a conviction on and would stand up on appeal because you could be assured that even after a conviction, former president trump and his lawyers will fight this thing not only to the court of appeals but even to the supreme court if they're able to do that and that's why if the department of justice does decide to do it they're going to have to make sure that they bring a case that is going to withstand that kind of scrutiny and that type of barrage from the defense trying to overturn any conviction on appeal
2: so the house committee can make a criminal referral does that make any difference to the department of justice
3: I don't think it really does at this point. I mean, a criminal referral is something that a House committee can do when they're conducting an investigation. And the Department of Justice may not be fully aware of all the testimony, all the evidence that they're gathering, and so the House Committee refers it over to the Department of Justice for further investigation. But this is something that is already clearly on the Department of Justice's radar. They've been listening to all the testimony. Apparently, they're getting transcripts from testimony that was provided to the House Committee and not made public at the time. And so whether or not there is a criminal referral will only ramp up the pressure on the Department of Justice to bring criminal charges, but it ultimately will not move the needle in terms of whether or not Merrick Garland pulls the trigger on an indictment here. That's something that's going to weigh very heavily on him. It's something that will ultimately make or break his reputation and his legacy. So he's got a very big decision to make, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens.
2: Thanks so much, Bob. That's former federal prosecutor
0: Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare.
1: Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: What do a former congressman, a Goldman Sachs banker, and an FBI trainee have in common? They've all been indicted for insider trading. In an unusual move, Manhattan U.S. Attorney Damian Williams unveiled the insider trading charges in four unrelated cases at the same press conference this week.
4: We allege
5: that each of the defendants charged today corrupted the, the integrity of the markets by stealing inside information or trading on stolen information.
2: Former Indiana Congressman Stephen Booyer, former Goldman VP Briesh Goyle, and former FBI trainee Seth Markin have denied the allegations. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Chris Mesh. These are all unrelated cases. Why did the U.S. attorney announce the indictments at the same time?
5: So we don't really know that. The only real thread between these cases is that they were detected by the SEC at their market abuse center in Boston, um, which kind of you know analyzes data patterns to see if maybe there's been insider trading. Um, and so they detected all of these cases. Why they decided to announce them all at the same time, we have no idea, other than to possibly – Send a big signal that they're watching, and especially now that there's a you know a hot trading environment going on, or it has been you know since the pandemic. So we don't really know why. It's it's a good question.
2: Tell us about the former congressman and what they allege he did, and how they found him.
5: Yeah, so we don't know how they found. him. They probably detected his activity through the center, as I said, but. He had started a consulting company after he left Congress with a friend, and they had advised on some high-profile combinations, some businesses. And he had learned about the Sprint T-Mobile acquisition before it happened. So that was one of these things that he's alleged to have traded on.
2: And now the former Goldman banker. Tell us about what he's charged with.
5: So it's a pretty interesting case. He is alleged to have learned tips through the credit committee at Goldman, which he was on, and passed them to a friend of his. That he met at college in California, and then he would t- pass them on, and the friend would trade on them. Sometimes, you know, they would set it up as a squash game. He would say, "Hey, do you want to meet for squash after work?" Um, they didn't make a whole lot of money at it. That's the interesting part. I um, saw they that. lost on one trade. They made six hundred dollars on another. It's not like these guys were making millions of dollars. So one could wonder why, you know, when they have a job like this, they would risk it for such a small sum of money.
2: And also, it seems like the prosecutors flipped his friend because his friend wasn't charged criminally. So Ta- we are
5: not sure about that. The friend was sued by the SEC. He is named as a defendant in the SEC case. And it's clear that he recorded conversations with the Goldman guy. So we think it's possible that he's cooperated, that maybe he's pleaded guilty somewhere else. Um, but we have no real indication that he's actually cooperated. We know he consensually recorded his friend. So uh, there's a large assumption that he's some kind of cooperator, but um, there are a lot of variables that go into that that might not make that true. But it could be under seal. Who knows?
2: Goldman has a history of having their bankers or traders indicted for insider trading.
5: Yes, it's happened a few times, uh, especially in the past uh, five years or so. They had a trader who was implicated in a rather large international insider trading ring that was all feeding tips to one man in Switzerland who was trading on them and later pleaded guilty and testified against a number of them. The Goldman person actually pleaded guilty and avoided that entire trial. But there have been a number of cases. Um, In almost every case, Goldman has condemned the behavior. I should say in every case, Goldman has condemned the behavior and the person no longer works there. But um, it's obviously not a good look for uh, one of the most premier investment banks in, in the world.
2: The case that sounds most like a movie or TV script, is the one involving the FBI trainee. Tell us about yeah. that.
5: You can't really, It's for insider trader cases, it doesn't get more odd uh, than that. One of the people arrested was a FBI trainee who got information from his girlfriend while she was working at home and then passed it on to a friend of his. Obviously, that ended their relationship uh, at I some point. <laughs> but... It does sound like a movie. It's one of those cases where you wonder what everybody was thinking. And it's it's also an example of, you know, kind of the things that could happen when people were working from home and seeing what their spouses or their partners were doing and seeing confidential work or peering into it. It looks like he saw some reports that were sitting around and she possibly had no idea.
2: Is this a new crackdown on insider trading? Do you know?
5: It kind of seems like it. Um, they don't say you know directly this is something new we're going about it but they are clearly indicating they're getting more aggressive they're warning people i mean to enact four cases at one time i can't say i've seen that before especially ones that are not related other than the way they were detected so it clearly says hey we're doing this now i think it's a clear line of prosecution for them certainly it's been You know, a few years um, under the Trump administration, white-collar crime was not prosecuted as aggressively. So there were a lot of cases that kind of were caught up in the backlog that kind of got prosecuted once there was a new administration. But this seems to be a new line of attack. You know, they referenced the Raj Rajaratnam insider trading crackdown from about 10 years ago in the press conference. So it's clear that they are going after this, pursuing white collar crime, especially in the wake of the pandemic and the amount of training that was going on.
2: Thanks, Chris. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Chris Dolmesh. Coming up next, we'll talk to a securities law expert about the cases. This is Bloomberg. Joining me is securities law expert James Park, a professor at UCLA Law School. At the press conference, the words that the current Manhattan U.S. attorney used were so similar to the words that the former Manhattan U.S. attorney Preet Bharara used about a decade ago in announcing a crackdown on insider trading. Basically, be careful. We're watching. We're listening. Does that mean that the threat, the watching, didn't work? It's a
6: great point, June, that this misconduct continues. And I think that the need for enforcement to happen periodically is very important because it's been almost a decade, five, six, seven years, And we had the last significant wave of insider trading enforcement by the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York. These sorts of cases are part of that office's brand, part of the reason why it's such a prominent office. But even with the cases that Preet Fahara brought, I think the fear had dissipated by the time this trading happened. And so it's necessary not only to be watching, but to be enforcing to be bringing criminal cases because when you bring criminal cases, that will deter people from trading on inside information. But I think the lesson of these events, the discovery of this egregious trading at a very respected investment bank with strong compliance, I think that's a reminder that it's not enough to watch, you also have to enforce in order to deter insider trading.
2: So, the former Goldman banker, is the problem that he passed tips about potential mergers to his squash buddy, or that he split the trading profits with his buddy, or is it both? It's
6: definitely both, and I think the fact that he. With the profit with his buddy makes this an easy case under insider trading doctrine. In these cases, which are often referred to as tipping cases, the theory is that if I give the information to someone else and they trade on it and give me back some of the profits, that's essentially equivalent to me trading on it myself and keeping the profits for myself. And he was in a position where he was not permitted to trade on inside information because of Goldman Sachs policies that required confidentiality with respect to this information. When he tipped it off, he basically misappropriated that information. The gray area is what if he had just given the information to his friends and did not split the profit? That's where the law is a bit more murky. I think in New York, under the Second Circuit's precedent, you still would be liable for insider trading under the Martoma decision, which says that if you're giving gifts to a close personal friend... That we can assume that you've benefited to some extent because you're benefiting your friend. And if you benefit your friend or family member, you're benefiting yourself.
2: Prosecutors have evidence of texts between the banker and his friend about playing squash that they say are coded messages. So is that evidence they knew what they were doing was wrong?
6: Absolutely. You know, that really speaks to. The maturity of insider trading law, it's often criticized as being vague and difficult to apply, but, you know, at its core essence, I think the law is fairly clear. And they knew, they knew that what they were doing was insider trading and that they could be prosecuted criminally. Yet they took this risk and I think, you know, they may not have understood some of the other ways this sort of trading can be detected. You know, the SEC does play an important role here because my understanding is that they were the ones who first detected the unusual trading activity because they do monitor trading in stocks to look for various suspicious trading right before the announcement of a merger, for example. If there's a spike in trading from a certain account, then they have that data that they can look into, and they might refer it to the U.S. attorney's office. And so this is not a situation where they were innocently doing something they didn't know was wrong. They knew that what they were doing was insider trading.
2: There have been several cases against Goldman employees, including a former Goldman director, going back to 2012, I believe. Rajat Gupta, is there a problem at Goldman?
6: It's a fair question to ask when you have another incident like this. I do know Goldman Sachs has a very respected compliance department, excellent in-house legal team, but you know there's only so much the lawyers can do within such a large organization, and I think they are going to have to do more to protect their reputation. I think they're going to have to really renew their efforts to make sure that these policies are clear. And you know, I think they have to think hard about how they can do that to protect their reputation, because it is their reputation at stake, even though it was wrongdoing by uh, these two individuals. Um, I think that they're going to be having a lot of meetings um, in their legal department to figure out what they're doing and how they can do it better.
2: Thanks, Jim. That's James Park of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time.
0: I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.